Psalms 119 and 81. Kaith, my soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget thy statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? The proud have digged pits for me which are not after thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. They had almost consumed me upon earth. But I forsook not thy precepts. Quicken me after thy loving kindness. So shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. Notice what the psalmist writes in 83. For I am become like a bottle in the smoke. Yet do I not forget thy statutes. Hallelujah. The Lord will help me just for a little bit tonight. I want to preach to you on a bottle in the smoke. A bottle in the smoke. Stretch your hand this way. Ask the Lord to anoint Father. In the name of Jesus. Touch me by the Holy Ghost and speak through my lips. Father, minister to this people. Strengthen the hearts of those who are weary and weak this night. Let there be fresh feelings and fresh unctions that are poured out upon this congregation. I pray, God, that your work would be done tonight in such a manner that we would leave here saying, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Hallelujah, that you are faithful. We're trusting you, God, and believing you for it. God, we crave that unction that takes a mortal man and makes him a prophet. Take a coal from off your altar and place it upon my lips that I may speak as an oracle of God and we'll give you praise and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, hallelujah, amen, and amen. You may be seated here tonight. A bottle in the smoke. When it comes to the book of Psalms, it is not something that is unfamiliar to us. In fact, among the redeemed and those that claim the name of Jesus, the book of Psalms is a familiar friend. There's been times in our lives when we have faced trouble and testings and we often find ourselves leaning on what is written in the book of Psalms. In the middle of chaos and calamity and not having the things that we need, we'll often quote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Amen. There are many times that we turn to this book that to find solace and to express our uh, our heart unto God. Many times in prayer, I have not the words to bespeak of the majesty of God, and so I find myself quoting a psalm concerning Him and His glory and His splendor. The book of Psalms is something that the saints used to lean on very heavily when they did not have uh, uh, so much scripture and resources. Psalms was a common book that was easy to remember, and so they often committed it to memory. In fact, Spurgeon said there was a time when you could not become a preacher if you could not quote the entire book of Psalms. They would not ordain 
slain you. It was said that the farmers would quote it when they were marching in the fields, that the workers would quote it when they were on their trails to work, and that if you stood silent long enough in the dusk of the, of the evening, you would hear someone singing a psalm unto God directly out of the scriptures. We understand that the psalms are more than just a book of hymns. In fact, if you study psalms or the English name psalm, it comes from the Greek word psalmoi, and it means songs that were sung to a stringed or musical instrument. And we know that that's what psalms are, but that that description alone does not truly give us what the psalm stands for. In fact, the Hebrew word gives us a greater glimpse. It is the word thalim. It is a plural noun, and it is rooted in this idea that it is a praise that is continually given unto God. It is more than just the clapping of hands or the waving of arms and the singing of a song, but it is an expression of the heart of man that is trying to capture just for one moment a glimpse of the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the faithfulness of God. Oh, I'm glad tonight for the book of Psalms. Understand with me, when we look at the Psalms, this is a book that is like a faithful friend. There have been times in dark nights that I have turned to the passages of Psalms. There have been times when there have been great victories that I quote the book of Psalms. There have been times when I've been pressed by the majesty of God that I quote this book of Psalms. But as we come to Psalms 119, we recognize that this is a unique psalm in the book simply because if by nothing else the length of the psalm. Psalms 119 would require uh, 22 regular length psalms uh, to come encompass its breadth. It is broken down by the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, 22 letters there and there are 22 divisions. Now understand with me that each division begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And by the time that we get to the portion of scripture that we read tonight, that we find that we are about at the 11th letter. If we were doing it in English, we would be at the letter K. But right in the middle of this psalm, right in the middle, here is the psalmist saying, oh God, I long for your precepts. There's trouble and there's strife and they've dug pits and I don't know what to do except stay faithful and stand on your precepts. Keep the words of your mouth. Keep your testimony sure. It's all that I know how to do. But God, I am waiting on you to deliver me. William Cowper wrote of Psalms 119, he said every verse contains in it either a praise of God's word or some excellent quality of it or a protestation of David and his unfeigned affection towards the word of God or else a prayer for grace to conform himself to the word of God. For under one of these three, praises, prayers, or protestations. May all the verses of this great psalm be produced. Oh, glory to God. In the middle of this psalm, though as he is protesting, he understands that God, I am in trouble. Now, I don't know if David is writing from a present trouble or if he is thinking back to things that God has delivered him from. But nevertheless, we know that David is pressed, that David has been troubled. And so in the middle of this psalm, he changes his course of writing and begins to say, God, not only do I love your word, but in the midst of trouble, I'm still standing on what your word says. Now David is going to give us some things in the psalms. I hope I can take my time tonight. Amen. Amen. 
David is going to give us some things in Psalms 119 that we can stand on. He is going to give names to the law of God. Oftentimes we read it and we just say, that's the word. That's the word. And that's true. But David is going to identify certain characteristics that portions of the word possess. He will call it God's law. And it is called God's law because he enacts on them by his own sovereign will. If he speaks it, then it is so. It is the law of God. It cannot be argued with. It cannot be explained away. It cannot be shirked. It is the command given unto man. And David said, Lord, I love thy law. I love thy law. I love to be in obedience. I love to be under the commands of God. How many of you could say amen? I love to be under the commands of God. David will not stop talking just about God's law. David will talk about the ways of God. The the ways of God are the rule both of his providence and also our obedience. It does God no good to give us a path if we refuse to walk upon it. It does no good for us to have knowledge if we are not going to apply it to our lives. Come on here. In In the book of Daniel, God will tell us about Belteshazzar who brought in the the cups and plates of the temple of God and ate on them and that day God's hand came down you know the story and wrote upon the wall and when Daniel interpreted he said you knew about your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar he said but though thou knewest all this you knew it but you did not take heed to the knowledge of God and David said Lord I want to take heed to what you've written. I want to walk in your ways. David will talk about not only his ways, but he will talk about his testimonies. Strangely, can I tell you that you cannot give a testimony about God's ways unless you've walked in them. Oh, glory to God. Some people have a test, but they never stand God's way long enough to turn the test into a testimony. Amen. They get out in the middle of the battle. They wilt under the heat. They fall out in the middle of the struggle. And they never have a testimony. But David said, Lord, whether it's a fiery furnace or a lion's den, I'll keep your ways. And I have a testimony to give of the faithfulness of God. David will go a step further. He said, we have his law. We have his way. We have his testimonies. He said, but we also have his commandments. He said, they are given with authority. But this is different than a law. Because a law is given by legal jurisdiction. But a commandment is given. Or a command is given by someone who through warmth and love feels like you will honor them because of their position. Uh, Glory to God. Amen. Listen to me tonight. You look at one of your children tonight and you say, hey, run in there and get me a glass of water. You don't expect them to say, hey, old man, get it yourself. What's wrong with you? Are your legs broken? Are you too late? No. You expect because you've held them and you've succored them and you've fed them and you provided that when you give a command, it will be obeyed. A command is greater than a law because it is not given by simply authority. It is given by a bond of love. It is given by a submission. And David said, I will keep his commandments. He went a step further. He said, I got your commandments. He said, I will also keep his precepts. Listen now, 
precepts are a little different because I may get a precept from my father that you don't quite get from your father. But if it's given to me, I must keep it. Uh, listen to me. It is prescribed to us, and we cannot be indifferent about it. Glory to God. Are you with me right here tonight? Some of y'all, some of y'all fading on me. First night at camp meeting, we ain't shouting, and you're fading on me. He said, I got these precepts. It is a prescription. It is prescribed to me for my particular character, for my particular flaws. When I went to go down that path, he said, no, no, don't walk that way. But I just saw brother so-and-so. It doesn't matter. This is not a precept that is given to him. It is a precept, a prescription for you and where you are. David goes further. He said, I'll give you, I'll keep his word, his saying. This is now not a command. It's not a precept. It's not a law. This is the Father simply talking. <laughs> the Father simply sharing his heart. And David said, because I love you, I have heard your word. <laughs> Because I love you. Oh, we're always looking for ways to circumnavigate the direction of God and the word of God. And we're saying, why won't God share his heart, keep his commands, walk in his precepts, obey his law, and God will show you his word. He'll speak his heart because he knows that when he speaks his heart, you love him enough and you will hearken unto his words. goes a step further he says he also gives us his judgment pay attention now because these are framed in infinite wisdom and by these will be determined the fate of our soul by these we will be judged and by these we are given the power to judge I've preached it so many times in Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon sits at his window and says, I beheld from my window a simple youth. Come on here. He didn't have any judgment. Come on now. He had no discernment. He went the, or no discretion because he went the way to her house. He had no discernment because she came out dressed like a harlot. Oh, glory to God. And God, David said, Lord, you've set up judgments. Help me to look at them and teach me to judge the path of my life by what is written. My God, teach me, God, to make wise choices that are framed in your judgment. Oh, to live a life that is framed in the judgments of God. I ain't got time to cover all this. Amen. But he says, consider his righteousness, his statutes. I got to touch that one. Amen. Because we are living in a world that has no direction. But statutes are something that are fixed and determined and a perpetual obligation. Come on now. How do you know how fast to drive on this road? Because there's been some statutes. The speed limit is not just a law. It is a statute that is agreed upon. Come on here. And when you look at that, it's perpetual. It is 45 or 55. I don't know what it is out here. Might be 105. I don't know. But whatever it is, you can look at the sign. Oh, and when we begin to erase the statutes of God, 
take the speed limit sign down and Brother Derek may drive 60 and I may drive 70 and Brother Woods may drive 90 and who's to say what's right or wrong? There are no statutes. And David said, oh God, put the statutes out. I'll obey them. Put the statutes out. I'll follow them. Show me the statutes. I'll walk in them and I will have direction for my life. Then he says, I love your truth. You know why he loves truth? Because this is what God's law, God's commandments, God's statutes, everything is founded on this truth. Jesus did not mince around. He did not say, I don't know which way is truth. He said, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Everything that I've said to you is founded on this. I am truth. And so while David is writing Psalms 119, one of the greatest, in my mind, one of the greatest chapters to to study and to digest, David is writing about all of these things that he loves about God. But as we come to our text, David is writing of a calamity. His faith is on trial. He is facing a test and his back is against the wall. One translation opened this 11th portion of Psalms 119 like this. My heartstrings groan with deep complaint. My soul lies panting, Lord, for thee. And every limb and every joint stretches for thy purity. He said, God, I am in a place that I am not sure if I can keep your statutes if I don't stretch and touch the purity of your presence. You ever been in such a test, in such a struggle that you had to fight to keep your tongue? You had to fight to keep your heart? You had to fight to keep, oh, come on, that words would not come from your lips that would violate or destroy or or cause you not to sanctify the Lord your God and you found yourself in a place of prayer saying God I need to touch you that I may maintain my integrity that I may maintain my purity before you this is what David is saying but notice that he is not using the extreme conditions that he is facing to turn his back on God. Come on here. Don't we hear it? In these difficult times, oh, pastor, we had to shut down for three weeks, and, and, and now it's just so hard. Oh, look straight ahead and smile. It's just so hard to get back into the routine. It's just so hard. I mean, we got a routine now. We drink our coffee and sit on the couch and watch the live stream or listen to the podcast. It's so hard to get back in the groove. But David said, Lord, I'm in the middle of a calamity, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to stand. I'm not going to falter. I'm not going to fall. I'm going to touch you, and you're going to help me maintain my integrity what the writer in Hebrews 5 and 8 say of Jesus though he were a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered now do not assume that Jesus was not obedient already 
That is not what the Bible is saying. But that he was willing to test the power of obedience in his sufferings. What he is telling us is that Jesus suffered the most extreme pressing that any man could face. And he found this, that if he set his heart to be obedient, that he would be obedient. God. You don't know how heavy the load is. It's not heavier than the Garden of Gethsemane. You don't know how heavy the load is. It's not heavier than six hours hanging between heaven and hell suffering for the sins of mankind. And Jesus said, I was obedient. And the command of God in the midst of trouble and testing and trial is stand obedient. Stand in his way. Stand in his statute. Stand in his truth. Stand in his judgment lift your hands and say God help me Spurgeon says of this psalm that it is of the psalmist in his extremis. He is brought to the lowest condition of anguish and depression. Yet he is faithful to the law and trustful in his God. This octave is the midnight of the psalms. (laughs) That's what this psalm is called. The midnight psalm. It is as dark as it is ever going to be. (laughs) It is very dark, and yet David creates his own star. As he says, that in the end, I will triumph because of thy law. In the end, I will come out because of thy law. But David is in darkness. He is thrust into this portion of extreme calamity, and he's saying, God, it's dark but I trust you when I cannot see you. And we quote Psalms 23, and we gloss right over. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come. Well, that's good, isn't it? But in order for that to happen, you first got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's got to cast its pill on you. The sunlight has to be blocked. The path has to become dim. (laughs) You have to be able to say, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path because I cannot see. But when I cannot see where my foot is going to come down, I will walk in thy law. I will step into thy precepts. I will walk in thy ways. I will stand on thy truth. I will take hold of thy righteousness. I cannot see what is in front of me, but thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and it is a light unto my path. So David is in darkness, but he's holding on to the commands. Now the rabbis call this portion of Scripture the psalm of the hollowed hand. These hands that have been emptied by the sorrows of life. In fact, if the rabbis describe it, they describe it as a man kneeling on the ground with his hands cupped in the air, saying, Alms, just give me something. I have nothing left. Everything that is in me has been poured out. If there is some mercy, put it in my hands. If there is some grace, put it in my hands. And this is where David is at. And he cries this. And we understand calamity. But David said something that I did not understand. 
He said, I have become as a bottle in the smoke. I understand midnight, and I understand hollowed hands, and I understand calamity, and I understand straining. But what is the psalmist telling us when he tells us, I have become as a bottle in the smoke? Now, the Hebrew used three words for bottle. There's the word klameth. It means skin. There is the word nabel. It means skin bag or vase. Or a liar, which has a body-like form. In other words, it's been formed and it's solid. And you can pour something in it. But the word that the psalmist uses is the word noad. And it deals with a leather bag of skin which is made to hold liquid. Now understand that in the economy of the Middle East, where there was not much rain and there was not much water and there were not a lot of cool places. These bags were instrumental in making sure that they had what they needed to live. They would take a goat and they would kill it and they would slay it in such a way that it had a minor wound inflicted upon it. They would then skin the goat in a different way than they ever did. They would pull everything through the hole of the neck of the head of the goat that they would cut off and so they'd pull the body. They would then take and sew or band together every orifice until all that was left was this long neck of the goat and, and, and a, a bottle that was formed. They would then cure it and they would work on it and, and, and go through a process of making it until it was pliable and it was stretchable. It was said that you could fill one of these bottles with five gallons of either water or wine and oftentimes because the water was not the best and the wine could be too strong they would mix them until the wine became like a, a, a grape juice and it had water in it that would sustain them and they would bind it up and this thing was tough you could throw it off the camel and it wouldn't break the camels could stomp it with their hooves and it would last it could stand up to the pressure of what it was dealing with and they used it they would drink from it and sustain their lives these bottles were invaluable. They were so invaluable that they were often passed down as family possessions. If your father made a bottle, you might inherit it. Your son might inherit your bottles and his grandfather's bottles and so on and so forth until in time enough bottles would be made that the household could not use them all. Are you with me right now? Listen to me. As David is writing, he is not writing about a clay bottle. He is not writing about something that has been formed. But he is writing about one of these leather bags. And while they were tough, and while they could not be broken by falling off a camel, or tromped by the hoof of a camel and broken, these bags had one thing that was their enemy. If you set them close to the fire, and they were covered in smoke, they would begin to lose their elasticity. They would begin to lose their ability and they would begin to shriek. It was said that if you left a bag in the smoke long enough, that it would come down from being able to hold five gallons to less than a gallon. And David said, God, I'm in a trial. I'm in a place of testing and I find the capacity of my soul has become like a bottle that is in the smoke. I've shrunken down. I've lost my ability to stand up under the blows of the candle's hoofs. Now when I get dropped, I don't bounce back like I used to. There's something, oh, I feel like I'm preaching to somebody in this house tonight. I've gone through something that has stolen my wine. It's emptied me out. I've gone through something that has shrunk my ability. I can say praise God, but it's been a long time since a river has flowed out of my belly. Since I felt like dancing and shouting, I have become like a bottle in the smoke. 
Now listen to me. David knew about fiery trials. You knew what it was to be chased by Saul for 17 years. Hiding caves. He knew what it was to feign that he was crazy and let spittle dribble down his beard until the Philistine said, leave him alone. Yeah, Come on now. That's a rough day. Come on. What'd you do today? I acted nuts. Come on, oh great general, tell us what you did. I stood by the wall and stared at it and let drool run down my chin. I was too afraid to fight. Wasn't fast enough to run. So I had to think on my feet, and the best I could come up with was to go cuckoo. Amen. Uh, there wasn't even cocoa puffs then. I don't know what he went cuckoo for. Amen. But he said, I just got to go nuts. Some of you got it. Some of you didn't. That's all right. Listen to me. David knew about fiery trials. He knew about Absalom taking his throne. He knew about coming into the Amalekites and everything being taken and them wanting to kill him. And he had to go and encourage himself in the Lord. He knew about fiery trials. The Bible knows about it too. Paul would talk about Satan hurling fiery darts. Peter would warn us not to think it was strange when we had fiery trials. In another place, he'll tell us about manifold temptations. Then he'll tell, you know what manifold means? It just means manyfold. Then he'd tell us about manifold grace. They cross each other out. Amen. But listen to me. That's another message for another day. Amen. But listen to me. Job understood fire. And he overcame it through his manifold grace. In Job 23 he said, Behold, I go forward, he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him on the left hand, where he doth work. But I cannot behold him, he hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The fire, the fire, the fire. But notice that David isn't complaining about fire. He's complaining about smoke. Now, people say smoke comes from fire. That's not true. Smoke comes from things that are not being consumed wholeheartedly by the fire. Come on. Where the flames are and they're doing their job, there's not a lot of smoke. But let the fire begin to die down, and what happens? You get a face full of smoke. And David is saying, I've gone through this trial until there's nothing left. He said, but God, here I am in the smoke, and I'm tried up. We made it. Here we are at camp meeting. We made it. I tell you, when, when, when in April when they canceled convention, I was disappointed. I was like, man. I mean, that's, you, you know, listen to me. Convention, I get to hear Brother Woods preach. Love it. It's like salve to my soul. Brother Al is always, did you get sewed up today? I'm like, brother, I'm just getting the gravy here, man. I'm just getting filled up. I got to go back. I'm looking forward to hearing Brother Dare. I mean, I'm excited. I'm not, I'm not just saying I'm excited. I'm, I mean, I can't wait to get here tomorrow and hear that preaching. Hey, man, I'm excited. But listen to me. Uh, but not only that, uh, the altar calls, but, but also the fellowship. I get to see my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I, I get to be in the presence of God with them. I get to worship the God that I love with them. And they canceled camp meeting or convention. And then Brother Wood said, can't have camp meeting in the summer. And half, and half, last week I was just waiting. I was like, oh, God, don't let him call. Don't let him call. We need camp meeting. We need camp. And we made it. 
The fires came. We didn't know. I don't know if you had to shut down church. You had to shut down just for a few weeks and, and try to do live streams and parking lot services and, and, and pull your head. I'd rather kick the dog and slap the cat than do another live stream. I'm not playing with you. But here we are, and we made it. We made it through the fire. But listen to me. As I look tonight, there's some hands that barely have the strength to go up. There's some lives, they made it through the fire, but now their prayer life is dried up. Their reading life is dried up. Their worship is dried up. Life has handed them things that they don't know what to do with, and they're dried up because of the smoke. Fire's going out. Now, I read something interesting about this. And I thought, man, that'll preach if a preacher could get a hold of it. But they, they said they'd take the bags that weren't used anymore. Because eventually, Grandpa making bags and Uncle making bags and brothers and sisters, they'd have so many bags they couldn't use them. And so they would take them and hang them in the rafters of their homes. And they didn't have chimneys. So they'd cook and heat. And while they did... The smoke would rise, and the bags that had been created for use would begin to shrivel. And some of you are shriveled because you feel like you've been hung up and forgotten. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. Some of you are shriveled up and don't have the joy that you once had and the peace that you once had and the unction that you once had because you felt like you've been hung up and forgotten and the smoke has caused you to shrivel up. And now, every once in a while when they say testify, there's a little bark, but there's no bite. They ask you to sing. There's a bark. And maybe everybody shouts. But down in your heart, you know there's no bite. Come on now. You're talking to someone been preaching a long time. I know when I'm barking and I know when I'm biting. Come on now. I know when I'm making a noise and I know when the word is penetrating. And I know when the word is making its impact. And sometimes we get in the smoke. We've gone through the test. And we've made it to the other side. But we're shriveled up. Now see, what we don't understand is the economy of God. Because as Americans, if we came into a bunch of stuff that six grandpas ago had made, and it was cracked and brittle and wasn't any good, we'd say, hey, let's get rid of this stuff. It's just, it's just hanging in the rafters. It stinks. It's ugly. It's in the way I could, I could hang other things. I could hang my deer antlers up there. You know. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. But that's not the economy that God created. In fact, he said this, a bruised reed will he not break. And a smoking flax shall he not quench. Now, now, when you just read that, you know that a reed is weak. It's, it's not much. You could break it. You could just grab it with your thumb and finger and just snap it. It's not much. But that's not the message that is there. In fact, if you study and you, you can do it for yourself, you will find that literally this is a shepherd, a shepherd uh, fable or saying or something that is known by shepherds. That's what I'm trying to say, and I'm not doing a good job at it. 
Let's just get simple. Something that is known by shepherds. I know that's deep, and you'll want to know the you'll want to know the Greek for that later. I don't know. Amen. But a shepherd would take a reed and break it. And he would hollow, it was hollow, but he would hollow it out further. He would make little holes in it and he would use it as a flute. And he would play and calm his flock. Each reed made its own unique music. But here's the problem. A reed is usually in the water. And when you break the reed and take it away, eventually it dries out and it cracks. So when it would crack, the music would be harder to play or impossible to play or it had a different pitch that the sheep didn't recognize. Many shepherds would just take it and crush it and go find another reed. But a conscientious shepherd would take it down to the water and he'd dip it. He would take some bands, usually of leather, and he would band it and dip them in water and set them in the sun until they shrunk and pulled that crack closed. And then he would keep soaking it. He'd put a little wax in there and he'd soak it until eventually he could put it to his lips and play it again with the same tune. And God said, a bruised reed. Been a long time since I've had a song. Been... Oh, hallelujah, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. Been a long time since I had a song. Been a long time since I've been useful in the hands of the master. Maybe he's going to throw me away, but he stands tonight saying, you're a bottle in the smoke, but I don't just toss it. You're a bruised reed, but I don't just toss it aside. If you'll let me, I'll invest in you. I'll recover you. I'll restore you. I'll use you again for my glory. Went a step further, he said, a smoking flax I will not quench. What is that? That wick that was dipped down in the oil lamp that got blackened by the heat of the flame. I've been through the fire and now I'm burned up and there's nothing left. And because it's a cheap little thing, I mean, it's nothing. You know, God don't need us. God could reach down and say, you're never going to preach again, Ochoa. Yeah, he could. Woods, I don't need you anymore. And there'd be nothing we could say about it. I mean, he's made millions of us. Billions of us. Dad used to tell me, don't talk back to me, son. If I get tired of you, I'll take you out. I can make another one just like you. Amen. He don't need us. And they didn't need the flax. They could reach in there. They had many of them. They could pull it out and throw it away. But somebody that was conscientious would take it out and cut the black off of it. Dip it in oil. Put it back in the lamp and light it again. I used to burn. I used to, man, I'm preaching to somebody. I used to burn. I used to have a fire. I don't know if I'll ever burn again. I come to tell you, he's not going to toss you. He may cut you. He may dip you. But my God, when he's done, he's going to let you burn again. He's going to let you burn again. He's going to let you feel the fire in your soul again. Come on, church. Come on. Lift your hands. I feel the Holy Ghost here. Come on. Lift your hands and give him praise. Someone come to the piano. We're about to wrap this up. Come on. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Notice how he closes in Matthew 12 and 20. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment. I don't like that judgment. Why is God sending judgment? Well, you got to endure the judgment because this is what he said. Till he send forth judgment unto victory. Can't get to victory if you can't submit to the judgment. Can't get to victory unless you're willing to be dipped and banded and burnt by the sun. Can't get to victory unless you're willing to be plucked up and cut and dipped. Now look at this. And I'm closing. Jesus said this. No man putteth new wine into old bottles. Else the new wine doth burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. Well, I mean, I'm old. Do you know how I felt God? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know? Do you understand that, that I'm shriveled up and I'm an old bottle and if God gets me to this altar and puts new wine in me, I'm just going to burst? Here's what I discovered. When Jesus said they put new wine into new bottles... They didn't always go out and skin a goat and make the bottle. In fact, they would send someone in, they would get up in the rafters and they'd pluck a bottle out. And they would take that bottle and they would dip it in the water till it got soft. Then they would grab the neck and stretch it again. And they'd fill that thing up with about a gallon of oil. And they'd take their fist and ram it in there and begin to work that oil into the leather. And they'd ram it and stretch it and 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 ram it and stretch it. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. And ram it and stretch it and ram it and stretch it and rub it with oil until it had gained its size and its flexibility. Then they'd look for the little tears and the seams that were bad and they'd sew it up and they'd let that oil get good in there good and then they'd take new wine. And they'd fill it and they'd tie it off and what previously had been in the rafter shriveled by the smoke is now in the hands of the master, a vessel that is usable again. But it had to endure the process. David wrote, I have become like a bottle in the smoke.